Good evening. Welcome to the Buck Stops here on the program tonight. We move away from our usual debates for a very special interview with a man once regarded as one of the most promising Indian batsmen, Sanjay Mandrekar. Mandrekar has written this book. It's called Imperfect and it is an extremely candid confession of the highs and lows in his life of living with Vijay Mandrekar, his father, a legendary Indian cricketer, but also a violent, abusive man of going through the ropes of Indian cricket, experiencing both spectacular successes and huge disappointments, of seeing as a Mumbai batsman the advent of a certain Sachin Tendulkar and now of his life as one of India's leading cricket commentators. Sanjay, thanks very much uh, for, for being with us, for speaking to us. In your book, you've been incredibly candid and you speak about your father, Vijay Mandrekar. All of us have known him to be a legend in Indian cricket, but you've spoken also about his anger of how you were actually frightened about him. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that was the cricketer, uh, Senior Mandrekar. Uh, I knew him uh, more as a person. Obviously, the cricket uh, wasn't, uh, he, you know, he had finished playing uh, uh, when I was growing up. So I knew more the man behind the cricketer. And, uh, you know, poor thing, which I've written in the book as well, that he was like a true artist. Uh, you know, followed the game of cricket, played it and had no other skills and wasn't prepared for life after cricket. So he found himself a bit of a misfit, uh, didn't know what to do, you know, without a bat in his hands. And that, uh, you know, made him a little confused. He was uh, a bit angry that the system wasn't, uh, you know, giving him any place at all. He couldn't find his little, you know, space in the system and all that, uh, uh, you know, made him the person that he was, a, a bit bitter, frustrated, angry, confused. So that's the person that we had at home. And it has some bearing on me, and that is why it's there in the book. I've just, uh, you know, uh, chronicled people who made an impact in my life or incidents that made an impact. So that's how he gets but, a mention in the book. But Sanjay, was it difficult doing this to, to get around to writing about, about your father, about... What was, I, you know, I mean, and you write about it, a fairly traumatic part of your life, at least elements of growing up with him as dad, uh, someone, you know, you had issues with. Was it difficult writing about him? Not really, because, uh, you know, I'm not a very private person. You know, I feel that when I share things with others, you know, um, there's a learning for others. It's not so much about keeping things to myself. So I had no problems uh, sharing that with the world. If anybody had a problem or I was concerned a little bit with, uh, you know, how my sisters would react to that chapter and they seemed fine. So I didn't have an issue and, I, you know, somewhere I think people find a connection in these kind of stories and they would want to know how, you know, people handle it. So it's out there for people to, you know, see that these are the kind of challenges that, that one faces when they're growing up. So absolutely no issue. And when I started actually writing the book, it wasn't part of my plans as well. I just started writing and I just I'm trying to remember the things, as I said, that made an impression on my life. And I realized my father, in a way, had made quite an impression. And that's why he uh, found that uh, space in the book. I didn't actually plan it. It just happened as I was sort of unraveling yeah. you know, uh, my life. Were you scared of your father? Because you write about the occasions when he used to come back home in his car and that's when you used to run into your bed. Yes, <laughs> yes. Petrified, actually. So when he used to come home and when I used to hear him around, you know, 
uh, our building and the spark is car and the doorbell would ring, you know, my anxiety levels would go up. It was like before I went out to bat against the West Indies, <laughs> quite similar. We'll talk about uh, we'll, we'll talk about other aspects of uh, uh, of of your life and of, of your cricket. I don't want to belabor this point, but did your father Vijay Mandrekar influence your cricket? Uh, I have no idea. You know, I've raised a question in the book. You know, people th thought I was a little overcautious. I was, uh, you know, uh, making sure that it was always safety first before I played an attacking shot. So did that come about, my approach to the game and the way I played, did that come about because of my slightly insecure childhood? I've just raised a question. I'm not an expert of that, that I could definitively say that, yes, this is the reason I played the cricket the way I did. Uh, I just wonder because, you know, as you see that a lot of your adult life has a lot to do with how your childhood was. Yeah. So who knows? And speaking about that childhood, you've written, uh, written about uh, Moonreach Apartments. Uh, very tall buildings uh, where you lived and, and the friends you made there and the experience of playing gully cricket over there, that was very much a, a growing up experience that, that you recall fondly. Softball cricket is underrated and I think uh, a lot of the great talent that uh, came from India, my father was a softball cricket product, Wasim Akram, Wakar, you know, Shoaib Akram, all products of softball cricket. And unfortunately now today you see youngsters from the age of 12 and 13 go straight into formalized, you know, net sessions and academy that they call starting to play with hardball cricket. I think softball cricket is where you develop your flair, your style and which is actually softball cricket is more enjoyable for a 12 year old than hardball cricket, which, you know, most of the time it's about worried about not getting hurt. And that's where I think the flair is a bit stifled. I was typical, uh, you know, Mumbai young aspiring cricketer who had always had a little bit of a brush with softball cricket and that is where we had fun and it was morning evening you know 10 15 like-minded kids would assemble there was always enough space in your building compound to play cricket now that is occupied by cars you know parking that's become a parking space and all these little things affect the landscape of you know mumbai cricket um, like the landscape has changed in mumbai city these were sort of the breeding grounds for people like me to become cricketers and that's been taken away. So all yep. these little forces, you know, play a part. Sanjay, um, I mean, I, I've grown up watching players like you in the, in the, uh, in the late 80s and the early 90s. Um, I, I remember watching your, your test debut uh, as well on television. And, um, and of course, there was Sunny Gavaskar and Gavaskar was Mr. Technique himself perhaps the greatest technique uh, in the history of the game. Some people would certainly say so. Um, but you were also technique obsessed, weren't you? Was that also at a certain level of weakness? Because, you know, if you get too obsessed about your technique in batting, then, you know, you tend to forget about sometimes the actual ability of scoring runs, uh, which is obviously the most important thing. Yeah, a couple of things there. I think my game was my natural style. So when people started raving about my technique, I had no idea that I had a good technique. So that was my style to begin with. Uh, Sunil Gavaskar clearly was my, you know, role model. So maybe uh, my approach and everything was shaped, um, you know, just looking at him. I think Mumbai cricket and Indian batting at the time was always defense first. You know, the gospel was that as a batsman, you gave the first two sessions 
to the bowlers and then you took the final session as a batsman to yourself and started attacking. So that was something that was drilled into our heads, which I now feel was wrong. I think cricket is all about scoring runs. If you get a loose ball, first ball of the inning, you've got to drive it and get four runs for it. We were never asked to be more attacking and play, play with more freedom. That's why people like Virendra Seva, who broke out from all these sort of traditions of coaching and how cricket has been played, you know, you, um, they've really shown a new way. And I thought coaching during our time wasn't great and this was one of the mistakes that Mumbai batting or Mumbai batting coaches made was that it was so much about technique and uh, playing defensively. I think it should have been more about runs. Yeah, Mumbai cared for runs, the yeah. big uh, runs, but they also cared about how you got them, which is, uh, I don't think, uh, very important. That allows you to be really smart and change your ways according to the needs of the team if you're thinking just runs. And that makes you versatile if you're just thinking about runs rather than the style of batting. Sanjay, um, you know, as you, uh, as you went up Mumbai cricket and, and, and you performed at, at, at the club level, at the state level, uh, and ultimately at the national level as well, there was a young Sachin Tendulkar also from your city uh, going up through the ranks at a phenomenal pace. Um, and did, be honest with us, was it at, at one level a bit of a problem for you um, on, on being regarded by many as, as the finest young Indian cricketer, you, uh, you know, in that time, but then all of a sudden there's this kid called Sachin who lands up and, you know, he's, he, he plays at, at an altogether different level. Excellent question, uh, Vishnu, because there was that actual time. And I'll give you the years as well. I think it was from 89 when Sachin made his debut. I made my debut around a couple of years earlier, but I didn't play enough cricket. So 89 to 92, we were together. And yes, at the time, you know, you always want to be the best. And if, at that time, I was hailed as India's best batsman because of my series against West Indies and Pakistan. And Sachin Tendulkar had just entered. But in about a couple of years, 92, when we went to Australia and then South Africa, I realized that this guy was in a completely different league. There was no way I was going to match this fellow because this was a guy who was 10 out of 10, especially overseas. You know, he had right. the game for it, uh, runs were difficult to come by for a uh, player like me, but he played as if he had grown up on uh, those kind of pitches. So it didn't take me long to realize that there was absolutely no chance of me trying to match uh, this talent. It was there for a couple of years. I thought, you know, I had to still be the number one batsman in the team, but I had no illusions after that. And I was happy to be second or third best, um, you know, with Sachin, because it was easy to see how, you know, exceptional he was. Well, one of the things that you would have grown up with is, is you know, the legendary West Indies, the fact that they were, you know, their fast bowling uh, attack was the greatest, I mean, over a period of time that the, that the game of cricket has, has ever seen. And then you write in one part of your book, which I found fascinating, this conversation you had with Sunil Gavaskar, where you actually ask him, you know, Sunny, do you actually see the ball? Tell us a little bit about that. Really, because, you know, you have all these people spreading stories, you know, okay. trying to uh, make you feel as a young upcoming player that test cricket is something that's you know, too hard. It's almost like it's impossible for you to go and play there, you know, <laughs> and I had a problem with these people. There's one coach, actually, when I was, um, you know, a young leg spinner, who would tell me that there was this bowler playing for his country. He was so good that when he found a flat pitch to bowl on, and he saw that there was no turn, nothing, no help from the pitch for him, then he would keep bowling on one spot on the pitch and repeatedly keep bowling on that spot and create a spot there. And from that spot, then he would sort of get all his wickets and 
you know, run through the opposition. And we were young, impressionable, you know, minded young cricketers and we took all these stories to be true. Now we realize, you know, after a few years that this was just legend and it was utter nonsense. So West Indies, I think that is the same thing that was drilled into our head that very often you don't, don't see the ball, they are so quick that you, as a batsman you just watch them coming and then the next thing you know the ball is in the keeper's hands. So I'm glad I had that conversation with Gavaskar to find out the actual story and he just rubbished it. What about someone like Malcolm Marshall because you've written about him as well, a, uh, an incredibly intelligent uh, bowler quite besides being among the fastest in the game, uh, so many variations in his bowling. How, did you f how difficult was it to, to figure out someone like Malcolm Marshall? Yeah, these were the endearing moments of my career and that's why I remem remember them vividly. Uh, most of my cricketing memories are a blur. You know, a lot of matches I don't even remember playing when people mention it. But this is one I remember. I got 100 in the uh, Barbados Test match. This uh, was in Trinidad, the next test when he got me out leg before. It worked out a way of, you know, getting the ball back in typically and my front foot was going across a bit too much in the endeavour to get in line to those short rising balls. And then it worked out a way and I got a, got a couple of low scores in that test match. Next test I was aware as to what he was going to do and I adjusted my stance a little bit and I was expecting that ball to come back in and he bowled that. You know, he sort of set it up by bowling outside the off and then got that ball to come back in and I handled it well and that was the great thing about the West Indian team and the players at the time, you know, because they were so, so much better than us. Maybe against Australia they wouldn't do it, but because they were so much better than India, uh, they were anyway going to be winning matches by a big margin, but they loved, you know, young talent coming through from India. I think they have a soft corner for India. You know, earlier I believe we were East Indies and <laughs> they are West Indies, so right. maybe that connection was there. He was just happy that a young Indian batsman had found a way to counter his sort of great skills and mind and I could see the appreciation on the follow-through, you know, I mean, it was brilliant and this is an opposition bowler not saying anything but looking at me almost admiringly. You know, these are the moments we can never forget. So Sanjay, uh, tell us a little bit about what you do now. Obviously, we see you on, on television and we see you uh, as a commentator. Uh, is that because you, you, you feel that, you know, you, you just can't be away from the game that's, that's been so much a part of your life? Uh, no, I think, you know, it was a sense of relief uh, because I mentioned in the book, uh, you know, post-92 until 97, it was like I was swimming against the tide, you know, constantly looking for that one inning that would propel me back into, you know, the spotlight and uh, being at the top that had begun from 89 to 92. There was one hundred that came along the way against Zimbabwe. It was a good fighting hundred. It was a match-saving hundred, but I was still looking for the form and the runs to come together. Runs were coming, but not the big hundreds uh, at the quality that I expected from myself. So it was getting tough. Playing Ranji Trophy cricket was depressing to say the least and to imagine playing that in the hope that I'd get another opening somewhere down the line was just a bit too much. So I was actually fed up and I was, even when I was playing cricket, I was able to look at life outside cricket. You know, I was not like my father uh, where who thought cricket but was his life and nothing else. So I was happy to move away from cricket and have a career somewhere else. I yeah. tried that with Air India after I retired and before I realized that it was a terrible company to work uh, for. But I was happy to do something else. And it was just out of fatigue. 
you know, that I said enough is enough and gave me a sense of relief. And somewhere I felt, you know, that might also seem nice that I retired before time. Sure. Sort of people sort of waiting for me to kitna kitna So I didn't want that talk as well. I was quite conscious of that. So it was a sense of relief, not tough. But it was emotionally quite a significant moment, as I mentioned in the book, for my wife as well, who doesn't cry very often, but she broke down when I, you know, on that particular day when I just announced my retirement. Yeah. And about commentary, since you are being so candid, what don't you like about it? And I've not found anything more exciting than commentating. It's also another, it's a creative job. It's connected with the game keeps us uh, supposedly celebrities in the spotlight. That's another attraction that people will not confess, but uh, that's another reason they do it. And you're watching the game and, you know, every game is different. New players come in, so there's new analysis. So all that is great fun. And nothing connected with cricket is more exciting for me. Selection has never been exciting. I would, I think I have some ingredients to become a coach, but again, you know, a good coach must have a good team to you know become a good coach then you're also at the whim of the board officials for you to continue as coach so it's got it it's fraught with all those uncertainties as well so i'm very happy doing this what i dislike about commentary is um, not really anything uh, sometimes producers you know uh, i often get into a little bit of debate with what has got to be you know it's actually their business as to how the run order i mean you would know you know how the content plan is made and, and how the uh, roster is made and the run order. So sometimes I get into debates with that. That is the only thing that I have a problem with. I often clash with producers. I'm a little surprised I still have this job as a commentator because that is something I do frequently with producers as to, you know, we could I do think this we all run into that problem. We could show and this first and producers. this later. So all those things happen. Sanjay well, Manjaker, job, yeah. uh, thank you so much for speaking to us and congratulations on your new book. We're going to move on now thanks, to something. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Really, uh, Thank you very much, Sanjay.